Our great and glorious God, we're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us and uh, the wonderful comfort and assurance that it is to our hearts to know that you are the sovereign God who is abundant in mercy and grace and you're full of loving kindness towards sinners. Our hearts are strengthened by those truths. And we pray this morning, Father, that you would help us to grow in the knowledge of these truths so that uh, as we grow in this knowledge, our faith would be enlarged and uh, there would result uh, from that faith lives that are lived in obedience to your word and the worship of your name, greater dependence upon your spirit. And we ask in particular that you might uh, use... uh, the example of your servant, the Apostle Paul, and the way that he has prayed to affect our hearts and to uh, compel within us a greater recognition of uh, the vast resources that you possess and the great need that we have. And as we recognize these things, might we be compelled and constrained to seek your face in prayer, to ask you, for your help as dependent children who are bowing before a gracious Heavenly Father. Would you strengthen our hearts in this time and use it for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I am uh, from Kansas City area and so glad to be here. And my assignment is to look at the prayers of Paul so that we might... Uh, learn from him ex- his example better how to pray and I'm I'm uh, thankful for that I, I really enjoy studying Paul and and uh, what he's recorded for us and so I've been uh, considering uh, leading up to this how to do this in a way that would best maximize our time and I landed on just one of Paul's prayers I, we could kind of survey and fly over the top of them but I think we might be better helped just to look at one. And so if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, we want to consider how Paul prays here in the middle of this significant letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. And uh, the themes that we find here are certainly in many ways representative of the way that Paul prays elsewhere in the New Testament. And so it will serve as... as uh, sort of a helpful example and guide of the Apostle Paul's prayers. His prayer for us here comes in verses 14 through 21. Let me read those. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, having been rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, 
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, it would certainly be somewhat wrong-headed to uh, assume that this passage is in the Bible uh, simply for the sake of giving to us an example of how to pray. Uh, It certainly does do that, and we're going to use it in that way uh, for a little bit this morning, but it has to be kept in mind that this passage serves a larger purpose in the overall letter of Ephesians. And uh, before we dive into this prayer, I think it would be helpful to note that purpose just briefly. Many of you are probably aware the book of Ephesians divides quite uh, naturally into two uh, equal sections, really. You have the first section, that is chapters 1 through 3, and that section forms for us what we might call the doctrinal portion of this letter. This is uh, Paul's uh, theological explanation, and it's here in those opening chapters where uh, Paul really expounds for the Ephesian believers the glorious riches of the grace of God that belong to his children through the Lord Jesus Christ. These chapters, uh, 1 through 3, are preoccupied with the unfathomable wealth of God's grace that has been lavished upon all who believe. In fact, Paul even makes a point in those chapters to uh, magnify the fact that this grace, this fullness of grace, the wonderful riches of God's grace, have been lavished upon all believers, Jew and Gentile included. All those who, though having been dead in trespasses and sins, have now been made alive in Christ by the glorious grace of God. Paul's focus in that first half is the grace that you've been given, and that you've been richly given, that's been lavished and bestowed in infinite measure upon his people. We don't necessarily have time this morning to... Uh, enjoy the the full meal that is uh, this portion, but perhaps maybe just a a small taste of what Paul says here would be beneficial. Uh, Take, for instance, as you think about the riches of the grace of God that have been lavished upon us, uh, take Paul's statement in chapter 1, verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. The blessing of the forgiveness of sins. The blessing of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The blessing of the inheritance of eternal life. The blessing of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to to sanctify us and uh, to keep us saved. All spiritual blessings have been bestowed upon us in Christ. Furthermore, as you think of this grace that has been richly given to us, uh, think about chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. After uh, Paul explains our, our spiritual depravity and the fact that we were dead in trespasses and sins, he then says in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, he says. So we've received the gift of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've received this this new spiritual and eternal life that he has raised us to. 
But notice also in chapter 2, verse 13, as he, he writes about the Gentiles who, uh, he says here, were formerly far off, that is, we were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. We were formerly far off, but notice, uh, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were spiritually deprived, but He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We were spiritually dead, but He made us alive together with Christ. We were spiritually separate and far off, but He has brought us near. And furthermore, He says, you go down a little ways in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, He says, for through Him, that is through Christ, we both, that is believing Jew and believing Gentile, have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Through the Son, in the Spirit, we have access to the Father. What a glorious privilege. What an amazing uh, grace from our God that we who should have been eternally condemned by Him have now been given access into His presence. Finally, as you note, the wonder of the riches that have been lavished upon us in Christ. You can note in chapter 3 verse 6 that he says there that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We who are Gentiles have been included, Paul says. We've been included in the saving purposes and work of God. And so, this is the wonder of the grace of God that's been poured out upon us. These are the riches of His grace, which is an appropriate term because Paul in chapter 3 verse 8 says that he's been writing about the unfathomable riches of Christ. And these first three chapters are all about how they've been lavished upon believers. And he does that so that we might greater know and more deeply trust in the love of God toward us. So that's the first section of chapter of the book of Ephesians. The second section comes in chapters 4 through 6 and we might refer to this as the practical portion of this letter. The practical portion. It's here in chapter 4 verse 1 as he shifts gears, it's here where Paul sort of gathers up all of the riches of God's grace from the first 3 chapters and he sort of stuffs them into that one word there at the beginning of verse 4, the word therefore. That is, in light of, in light of all of the riches of the grace that I've just detailed for you, that have been lavished upon you, in light of the riches of God's grace, go now and live in a manner that reflects that you have been graciously enriched by God. Or to put it in his words, in light of these things, conduct yourselves, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, let the attitudes of your heart, the thoughts of your mind, the conduct of your lives reflect the abundance of spiritual wealth that has been heaped upon you. And so in the sec second section of the book, uh, as he now calls us to appropriate the, the riches of God's grace and to live in light of them, you find a variety of commands instructing us in how we are to go about living 
in a manner that is worthy of this calling. And he'll say things, uh, for instance, like in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, and being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Live in that way. Or perhaps like what he says in chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Or, for instance, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, be imitators of God as beloved children, he says, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He says, conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of this calling that you have, in which you have been uh, graciously enriched with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Go and live in light of that. But this division in the book, which is very natural to see, the break between chapters 1 and one through 3 and 4 through 6, this division causes us to ask a question. And the question is, uh, is there something in particular that fuses these two sections together? Is there there's some kind of spiritual mechanism, so to speak, that would help me to be able to take the grace of God that has been granted to me in Christ and appropriate it in my life so that I might in turn live in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which I've been called? This division naturally causes us to ask that question. And the answer to that question has historically been to point to the means of grace. By the means of grace, I'm referring to the particular instruments that God has given to us that, that enable us to, to sort of lay hold of the grace that he's given and to turn around and by that grace go and live in accordance with what he's commanded of us. The means of grace would include, obviously, uh, the word of God and the study of the word of God. Uh, we, we lay hold of his grace that's been given and we grow in being able to appropriate that grace the more we study and know the truths of scripture and, and we hear and we heed its commands. And so the word of God is a means of grace. Uh, the local church is a means of grace. The fellowship of the body, the encouragement that we receive as we worship together is an instrument that God uses to sanctify us, to, to push us along in the Christian life. The Lord's table is a means of grace. As we come and we remember the saving work of our Savior and we confess our sins and we reassure our hearts in the fullness of the satisfying grace of God that is ours in Christ. All of these things are means of grace, instruments that God uses to help us appropriate His grace in our lives and live in accordance with it. But one means of grace and one that is particularly pertinent to the theme of this conference here this morning is prayer. Prayer. Prayer is a critical means of grace where, where we as the children of God would bow our hearts before the throne of our Heavenly Father seeking from Him the spiritual strength that we need in order to be able to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And in fact, prayer is precisely what Paul employs here in Ephesians in order to move us from doctrine to practice. 
He's wrapped up his doctrinal section in chapters 1 through 3, but before he moves into the section on practice, before he exhorts us with reference to our conduct, he prays. He prays. Before, in fact, we even get to the content of Paul's prayer and see how it is that he prays, we learn something about his theology of prayer. That, that is, we, we learn something about what Paul believed about prayer. And that is that Paul believed that prayer serves as an essential hinge that swings us from, from doctrine to practice. This is a critical piece in Paul's theology of prayer, recognizing that he views prayer and we can understand this just by virtue of the fact of where he's placed this prayer in this letter, he views prayer as the crucial link in the chain that connects all of the truth that we believe, chapters 1 through 3, with the fleshing out of that truth in our lives, chapters 4 through 6. And so this is significant. And with that in mind, the place of this prayer in Paul's letter and what that tells us about the importance of prayer, we can now sort of dive into this prayer and observe how he prays. And as we do, I want us to note here three features of this prayer that not only teach us how to pray, but also demonstrate for us the importance of prayer in our Christian lives. So notice, first of all, as you look at the text, Paul's posture in prayer. His posture in prayer. He, he begins not with the prayer itself, but he begins by describing his posture, how he approached the Lord in prayer. And he says there, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I bow my knees. This description of his posture communicates to us both Paul's heart of humility and his high view of God. Two things which, of course, go hand in hand. But note there his heart of humility. He says, it describes his physical posture as being that of bowing my knees. Now, in noting that, I would have you to understand that Paul is simply describing his posture here. This is not a command from his lips that this is what you must do when you pray. It is a description of what he's doing here as he prays. I bow my knees. In fact, uh, you can read your Bible and you really won't find a direct command that the believer must bow his knees before the Father when he prays. You would see it on significant occasions like when Solomon prayed in the dedication of the temple. 2 Corinthians 6 says he bowed his knees and some other significant points in Scripture. But frankly, like you might expect, physical posture is really never the ultimate emphasis when it comes to prayer. What is significant, though, is the posture of our hearts. The posture of our heart. And that's what Paul's physical posture is pointing to here. It's indicative of a humble heart. When you bow before someone, what are you saying about yourself and about that person? You're saying, I am subject to you. You are my superior. You are great and glorious, and I bow before you in reverence and humility and lowliness of heart and mind. This is for Paul a heart that recognizes his own insignificance before the glory and the greatness of the one to whom he's praying. And no wonder he felt that way. 
mean, he's just been articulating in these first three chapters the, the magnitude of the riches of the grace of God. He's, he's, he's looked at the sovereignty of God in salvation. He's looked at the work of the Trinity in salvation. He's looked at God's glorious plan for the ages, God's work of uniting Jew and Gentile. All of that, fresh on the mind of Paul, drives him to his knees in humble reverence before this great and glorious God. And as we observe that, we can note that whether or not we bow our knees, uh, which by the way, it is a a fruitful practice at times as you uh, get behind your closed door and you're alone with the Lord to, to reflect in your physical posture what you hope is true of your heart. But whether or not we bow our knees, when we come to the Lord in prayer, we most certainly ought to bow our hearts, right? In recognition of our lowliness, in recognition of our need for Him, our dependence upon Him. This is Paul's humility. This is Paul's humility. And we're not surprised by this humility because as you keep going, you notice here that Paul had a very high view of God. He had a very high view of God. Look at what he says. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So, he doesn't view prayer as just a a casual conversation with his buddy. Uh, Instead, Paul knows who it is that he's bowing before, and he has a very high view of him. And this high view of God on the part of Paul is seen, first of all, in Paul's description of God as a father. As a father. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for all who are in Christ, He is our Heavenly Father. He's a Father who who loves His children. A Father who cares for His children, who provides for His children, who protects them. And Paul's recognition of God as Father draws him to prayer. This is my Father who who wants to hear from me. Any, Any good earthly father would love to hear from their children. God is the greater Father, the Heavenly Father. He delights in the prayers of His children. And by that reality, we're summoned to come and we're summoned to pray. But that reality also would call us to come with humility and reverence because as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, the fact that we get to address God as our Father ought to cause us to conduct ourselves with fear and reverence during our time on this earth. So Paul is bowing in humility and reverence before his heavenly Father who loves him and whom he loves. And he comes trusting him and he prays and he bows his knees. And we pause and ask ourselves when we pray, do we contemplate the fact that God is our Father? He is our Father. It summons us to come to Him. When you need help, when you recognize that you are without the resources that you need for living this life, you look to God. Because He's the one who has supplied all these resources. He's the one who possesses all of them. And He is your Father who loves you and cares for you. But not only is He the Father, He's also the Sovereign. He's the Sovereign. Paul describes Him here as the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now that's an interesting phrase, and it's one that denotes for us the sovereignty of God. 
to name someone is to exercise authority over that individual. That's why when Adam was in the garden and God had commanded him, you shall rule over creation, including all the creatures of the earth, he then brought the animals in front of Adam for Adam to be able to name them. It was an exercise of authority, the authority that had been given to him by God. And for Paul to say here that God is the one from whom we are all named is to say that he is the one who has all authority over all of his creatures, uh, whether they be angelic beings, those in the heavens, as Paul notes there, or whether they be all of humanity, those on earth, we are all under the sovereign authority of God. It is to say that every family has its origin in God as creator and is therefore subject to his authority as our sovereign creator. He is sovereign over all, ruling and reigning as almighty king and lord and judge. But the the sweetness of this for the believer is that this one who is supremely sovereign is my merciful, loving, caring, heavenly father. We ought to emblazon that upon our hearts and minds. That will compel us to pray. That that will drive us to the throne of God with humility, reverence, confidence, and with joy to fellowship with our sovereign Heavenly Father through prayer. So this is where prayer begins. Recognizing the glory of who God is and bowing our hearts before Him. This is Paul's posture in prayer. But as he keeps going you notice that he next moves into his purpose in prayer. And his purpose in prayer is seen in verses 16 through 19, and it's really reflected in his requests. This is why he's praying, and this is what he's praying for. And as we examine these, what I'd have you to note is, these are the types of requests that we ought to prioritize when we pray for others. Uh, It's easy, obviously, to look around at those whom we love and care for and to pray with reference, reference specifically to their temporal needs. And we most certainly should do that. Uh, again, we're approaching a father. He cares for us eternally and spiritually, but he also cares for the temporal, physical needs that we're facing in this life. But oftentimes, I don't know if you've noticed this in your own life, but I have noticed it at points in mine, our prayers get consumed and taken up with uh, prayers just for provision of financial needs and healing of bodily ills and uh, the different cares and anxieties of this life. We should cast those upon the Lord knowing that He cares for us. But you notice as you observe Paul's request, those things really aren't the priority. When he prays for others, he prays and and he's essentially saying whatever circumstance they're in in this life, temporally, physically, financially, whatever circumstance they're in, I am praying for them that they would be spiritually strengthened so that they might honor the Lord and walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they've been called in the midst of all those circumstances. This is what Paul prioritizes. And I think we would do well to prioritize these types of things also. And so, as he prays, his prayer comes to us by way of three requests. And these requests have almost a, a staircase effect to them. You, you, with each request, you climb higher up the staircase until you reach the top, the, the pinnacle that is the third request that we'll see at the end of verse 19. But we want to climb this staircase a little bit with Paul here. And as we do, 
note that Paul, first of all, prays for spiritual strength. He prays for spiritual strength. He says in verses 16, in the beginning of verse 17, I'm bowing my knees in order that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul is asking that these believers would be strengthened with power. Strengthened with power. And automatically off the bat, if you think about uh, what it would take for me to be able to take all of the, the glorious truths of chapters 1 through 3 and appropriate them in my life so that my life is, is, is a life lived in, in worthiness and in light of those truths, what would it take? It's going to take a spiritual strength from God. And so this is where Paul begins. And as he prays for this strength, notice first of all the source of this strength. He, he says that he would grant to you. That he, that is that our, our, our God who is our sovereign heavenly father, that he would grant to you. Not that these believers would be able to muster up this strength in their own power. and Not that they would be able to merit this strength in their own efforts. But that he, the good and sovereign heavenly father, would give it that he would give it. And he could pray that with confidence because if you learn anything in chapters 1 through 3, you learn that God loves to give to his children. So he says, I pray that you would give them this strength. And as he notes the source of this gift of strength, that is God, notice he's concentrated here on the vast resources of God. He says there, I'm praying that, that he would give to you according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. He's praying that God would give in accordance with his vast resources. Now his glory here is really the full weight of the fullness of who God is. It's his splendor, his grandeur, his greatness. And his glory, of course, is revealed to us in the scriptures through his attributes, his love, his power, his sovereignty, his mercy, and so on. The request here is that God would give to his people in accordance with the fullness of who he is, in accordance with his vast, inexhaustible, infinite, and eternal resources. And you can notice there, Paul doesn't pray that God would give to us out of his resources. He prays that he would give in accordance with them. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, if I were a billionaire and I were to come in here and to give you a $10 bill, it could be said that I was giving to you out of my riches. But if I was going to give to you in accordance with my riches, you would have to take that 10 and add a whole lot more zeros to it, wouldn't you? To be in accordance with the riches is to give in a way that reflects the infinite vast resources of all that God is and all that God has. And that's what Paul's praying here. He's praying big. He's praying big. Give strength to them in accordance with the fullness of who you are. This is the source of this gift of strength. It is God who is a God of infinite and vast limitless resources. 
But notice also, Paul highlights the nature of this strength for which he is praying. He's, he says there that they may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So this strength that he's asking for is a spiritual strength. It's a strength that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And that's a phrase that should give great assurance to our hearts as we read this, because we understand that it is the Holy Spirit who has been given and who has indwelt believers. He lives within us. And so Paul is praying for something that will come through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, meaning this is readily available to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, I pray that they will be strengthened with this Spirit-given, Spirit-wrought power, and that they'd be strengthened particularly in the inner man. That they'd be strengthened in the inner man. This is a, a phrase that you find come up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul would say that our outer man, though it is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. It's the inner man of our heart, our soul, our mind, our spirit, who we really are. And Paul is saying, I, I ask that God would give to you to be strengthened through His Spirit in your heart, your soul, your mind. He's asking for a Spirit-given strength that would enable us to live in our thoughts and our words and our motives and our ambitions in a way that would bring honor and glory to God. This is a strength that, that would be such that we could uh, mortify sin and pursue holiness. It's a strength that would enable us to, to worship God more faithfully. It's a strength that would help us to, to serve His body more effectively. It's the spiritual strength in our hearts. Paul says, I ask that you would give that to them in accordance with the riches of your glory. Give them this strength. So you have the source of this strength that is God himself. You have the nature of this strength. It's a, a spiritual strength in the inner man. But notice at the beginning of verse 17, the result of this strength. He says, I ask you to give them this strength so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now he's not talking there about that moment when we come to know Christ by faith and we are immediately uh, indwelt by Christ through his Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, what he's talking about here, the, the idea really is that of Christ being at home in the believer's heart. The, the thought is, as James Montgomery Boyce uh, notes, that Christ might settle down in our hearts and control them as the rightful owner. That's the picture of, the, of this word to dwell here, that, that, that Christ would be at home, that he would be ruling freely with no resistance, but that he would rule and reign in our hearts and that it would affect our lives. Paul says, strengthen them with the spiritual power in the inner man so that their faith would grow and as their faith grows their submission to Christ will grow and Christ will rule and reign in their hearts. That's Paul's first request, this spiritual strength. He's praying big, isn't he? But it keeps going and there's a second request. 
Secondly, he prays for knowledge. He prays for knowledge. You pick up in the middle of verse 17 and it says, and, and that you, having been rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So if we're going to appropriate the truths of chapters 1 through 3 and bring them to bear on the way that we live our lives, chapters 4 through 6, we, we need first of all this spiritual strength, but we also need this knowledge. And it's a knowledge particularly of the love of Christ that he wants us to have. He wants us to have a settled knowledge, a, a firm conviction regarding the love of Christ. And as he prays that request for the belie- Ephesian believers, notice he, uh, th- there's a basis for this request. He says, uh, because they have been rooted and grounded in love. Because they have been rooted and grounded in love, I want them to grow in the knowledge of that love. That's kind of the idea of putting that all together. But in in noticing that basis, having been rooted and grounded in love, you can see the mixed metaphor there. You you have the idea of being rooted, which is a botanical uh, concept where uh, you plant a a tree in fertile soil. Then you have this idea of being grounded, which is more an architectural concept. That's where uh, you, you establish a building upon a rock solid foundation. And so Paul says that we have been rooted like a tree firmly planted in fertile soil and we have been grounded like a building that's been set upon a sturdy foundation and the soil in which we've been rooted and the foundation upon which we have been built is love. Rooted and grounded in love. and Particularly the love of God. You think about that idea. Well, what is the foundation of our salvation? Well, what do we trace our salvation back to? You can trace all of the spiritual blessings we enjoy in our salvation. You can trace all that we are as the children of God back to the fountainhead, the foundation of the sovereign and eternal love of God. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians 1.5 that it was in love that God predestined us to adoption as sons. That's why you can say in Ephesians 2.4, it was in love that he made us alive together with Christ. It's why God would say of his people in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love that reaches from eternity past to eternity future. That is the foundation of our salvation. That is the fountainhead, if you will, from which all of the saving work of God and all of the saving benefits that we receive, that they flow from the fountainhead of God's eternal sovereign love. And so he says, you've been rooted and established in this love But in order to appropriate that and live in light of it, we need to be constantly growing in our knowledge of this love. And that's what he asks here. That that they, or that you, would be able to comprehend, that you would have the ability to, to grasp and lay hold of with all the saints. Notice, not just as an individual Lone Ranger Christian, but with all the saints together, growing in the knowledge of the love of God, that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. This is the four-dimensional love of Christ. And he says, I pray that you would know the love 
in, of God in those dimensions. You say, well, what does Paul even mean by that? Well, I think it's a somewhat pictorial way of describing what is really the indescribable love of God. Uh, I mean, if you were asked to describe the love of God in just a sentence or two in a letter, we would struggle to, to really encapsulate it. And so Paul puts it in this four-dimensional terminology just to give us a sense of, of the fullness, the vastness, the incomprehensibleness, if that's a word, of the love of God. And I think in doing that, his intent is really quite similar to uh, that of, of Frederick Lehman, who wrote the great hymn, The Love of God. Just listen to these words. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But he says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Doesn't that capture the infinite vastness of the love of God? Doesn't it capture the fact that his love is incomprehensible. I mean, and that's exactly what Paul points to here. He says, this is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And yet, what he's praying for here is that we'd know it. We'd know this love. And we would have to look at that and say, well, the love of Christ is incomprehensible. It can never be exhaustively comprehended by us, but it can be truly known. We can, we can know something of this love, and we can throughout our lives be constantly growing in the knowledge of this love. And Paul is asking this for the Ephesian believers because the knowledge of the love of Christ is critical if we're going to turn around and live in light of the love of Christ, which is the life that he's going to call us to live in the second half of this letter. This is how Paul prays. He prays that we might know the incomprehensible love of Christ. I mean, we'll, we'll never exhaust the knowledge of it. We understand that. How could we? I mean, it's a love in which the eternal Son of God, even right there, we're, we're already at a loss for words at what all that means. The eternal Son of God, who is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit in power and glory, has humbled himself to become a man in order that he might fulfill the law of God as the representative of his people, and that he might suffer the wrath of God as a substitute for his people. How do we fully grasp all of those truths and lay hold of it? How do we exhaust and comprehend that in the perfection of God's love as the eternal creator God condescends and becomes a part of the creation. This is an incomprehensible love, and yet it's one that we can begin to know and grow in knowing as the Spirit strengthens us. And it's one that we need to know if we're going to live for His glory in this world. And so this is what Paul prays for. He prays for spiritual strength, he prays for the knowledge of the love of Christ. And all of that leads to really what is the crescendo of his prayer. And it is the request in verse 19, we can just say for fullness. He's prayed for strength, for knowledge, and now for fullness. Look at what he says at the end of the verse. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I mean, that's the prayer request to end all prayer requests, isn't it? <laughs> Pray that I'd be filled up to all the fullness of God. If you've ever been in a prayer meeting and 
you were listening to the requests as they went around and you started to get a sense that people were trying to one-up each other with their requests, this would be the trump card. <laughs> this is the request that sort of puts to shame every other prayer request. Pray that I would be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's what Paul's praying for. You, you could pray for nothing greater. He's asking here for the people of God to be filled up to or into all the fullness of God. And you say, well, what does the fullness of God even entail? Infinity? <laughs> We can't even begin to grasp the magnitude of this concept because we can't even begin to comprehend the, the God in His pure, perfect, uncompounded divine essence, His divine being. That's, that alone is outside of our comprehension. The, the fullness of God is really a concept that Paul is employing here that leaves us at a loss for words. So as we think about this, maybe we're on safest ground to just look at this statement about the fullness of God and simply say that Paul wants all that God is to fill up all that we are. God wants all that, or Paul rather, wants all that God is to fill up all that we are, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So you hear that statement and again you say, well what does that even mean? The, the idea of being filled up in and of itself has difficulties, doesn't it? But I think we can get an understanding of this if you just jump ahead in Ephesians chapter 5. Look over there for just a second. Ephesians chapter 5, we, we get a little bit of help in understanding what it means to be filled up. He says there in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. He's giving to us parallel statements there. Don't be drunk, but be filled. And so we can grasp this concept of being filled by comparing it with the parallel thought of being drunk with wine. Now to be drunk with wine is to be under its influence, is to be under its control. And the way that a drunk person thinks and speaks and acts is dictated by the intoxicating effects of the alcohol. Well, you take that concept of the influence and the control that alcohol would have in a drunk person's life and you import it into this idea of being filled. To be filled with something is to be under its control, under its influence. And here, in chapter 5, it's the Holy Spirit, but in Paul's prayer, he's saying, I want you to be controlled under the influence of the fullness of who God is. It's a great way to pray, isn't it? That, that you would be compelled, constrained, controlled in your life by the fullness of all that God is. That's backwards from what is often our experience. Often our experience is that we're controlled and influenced by all that's going on around us, everything that we can get our get access to in social media, all that's going on in the world, our own lives, our own circumstances. Paul says, no. I pray that, that, that their thoughts, their words, their actions, their lives would be filled up, controlled by the fullness of who God is. That's how he prays. Those are the types of things he prays for 
and he does so before his sovereign heavenly father and then let me just mention with a, in, a, in a brief moment he does so with praise this is his praise and prayer and this is how it all ends he says now to him verse 20 who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen You know, we started this prayer with a recognition of the sovereign authority of God. He's the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. But Paul brings it to a close with a recognition of the sovereign ability of God. He is able, able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And he's praising him for that. But we would have to pause and ask ourselves, do I come to God in prayer with that conviction? with that faith that he is able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I, I suspect oftentimes we don't and that's why we don't pray for the types of things that Paul prays for. That's why our prayers get entangled just with the temporal, just with the physical and, and never move beyond that to these glorious spiritual requests that Paul prays. It's because we don't think of God as being one in sovereign authority and we don't think of God as having all absolute sovereign ability being able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think perhaps the most critical piece to being able to pray like Paul is that we would view God the way that Paul viewed God we view God the way Paul viewed God how can you not pray how can you not go to him and ask him for those things that you need if you're going to be able to live a life of obedience to Him. And then of course he closes his prayer by ascribing praise unto the eternally worthy God. He is worthy of glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's how Paul prays. I think you can take that now and run with it to the rest of his prayers in the New Testament and find some more insights there. But it's a good start recognizing his posture, recognizing his purpose, recognizing his praise, and beginning to align our hearts uh, in that way as we approach our great and glorious Heavenly Father. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we are just so thankful that as we consider your sovereign authority over all of creation and your sovereign ability that works according to the power that works within us. We're so grateful that we get to look upon you and call you our Father. What a sweet privilege. Might that fact alone invite us to pray, compel us to bring our humble and needy hearts before the throne of our sovereign Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. We ask that you might bring this to bear on our hearts in a way that would help us to pray with greater fellowship and communion with you. We're asking this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.